Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 18 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, and welcome to a new year. My friends, we have arrived in the year 2023, and given the current state of the world today, it can at times be a challenge to maintain a positive perspective. But brothers and sisters, I admonish you all to ground yourselves in a heavenly perspective. The living God has placed you and me here today as ambassadors of his kingdom and will equip us to meet the challenges that we face in our time. Embrace faith, not fear, and rest assured our God is at the helm. Since this time last year, the podcast downloads have increased nearly fourfold, in spite of how seldom I post new content. This lets me know that there is definitely an interest in the topic, and my deepest thanks goes out to all of you who listen and share the show for this growth. I can't tell you how much your fellowship means to me, and I never fail to be humbled by the kindness and vulnerability of those of you who connect with me. I'm thankful that this podcast has added value to your lives, so please continue to rate, subscribe, and share the show. And please take a moment to leave comments and reviews on your favorite podcast apps. This helps new listeners find the show. And if you're interested in helping me make time to produce more content, please visit thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support to help me continue. I wouldn't do this if it wasn't important and fulfilling to me, but it takes a good bit of time and money to keep this going, and any support you can offer would be greatly appreciated. And if you or someone you know would be interested in sponsoring the podcast, get in touch with me through contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com with sponsor in the subject line. Having a few sponsors for the podcast would go a long way in allowing me to devote more time to producing new shows. But regardless of whether you're interested in supporting the show or not, always feel free to email me through contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. I love hearing from listeners, and due to the somewhat sensitive nature of the topic, rest assured I will always keep our correspondence confidential. Also this year, I'm considering starting a newsletter. And until I get time to add a sign-up feature to the website, if you would like to join, just send me an email and I'll add you to the list. For starters, I'm considering hosting occasional Zoom chats where we can meet as a community, share stories and ideas, and discuss all the things you probably can't discuss at church. So if that is something that you'd be interested in, send me an email. That's enough business. Let's get to today's conversation. Today we welcome C.T. and Becca Thompson to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. C.T. is an entrepreneur and decorated former U.S. Army Green Beret and defense contractor with seven combat deployments combined. Since his time in the Army, C.T. has been active in the veteran nonprofit space and owns his own business. Becca is a wife, mother, and avid rock climber. She works in military admissions at a university and part-time for veterans exploring treatment solutions. Becca and CT have been married for 18 years 
and with their 10-year-old son, currently reside in their native state of Texas. CT and Becca Thompson, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Clint. Well, why don't we begin by y'all just giving the listeners a little bit of information about your early life. How did you get started? You know, what part of the country did you grow up in? What kind of family lifestyle did you have? In particular, you know, what was your religious faith or spiritual upbringing? Either one of you can go first. It's it's up to you. Sure. So I grew up in a pretty rural town uh, just outside of Houston, Texas. You know, I come from a family of like generations of farmers and ranchers, and that was the, the environment that I grew up in, which uh, was great in a number of, of ways. There are so many, I think, important lessons that I learned as a kid, just work ethic and probably a lot of grit and determination and things like that came out of it, as well as freedom, you know, just having so much space time out in the woods and that kind of thing just was amazing looking back on it and really set me up for success later on in life. But, um, you know, grew up in a Christian Catholic upbringing. And I mean, that still carries in into today. Um, Went to seventh and eighth grade and into high school, went to some Christian schools, which was also fantastic. And led into some of the decision making we've made with our son going to a a Christian school uh, right now. But um, finishing high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life necessarily. Uh, I got accepted into Texas A&M University, and I also kind of simultaneously signed up for the, the Army Reserves and ended up starting out in the Army Reserves as a mechanic and then decided, I mean, I knew early on that I wanted to go active duty. Um, I mean, like two weeks into basic training, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to go in the army, active duty, but I also knew that I wanted to, to do something more. And while I was waiting to sign a contract to go active duty, that's actually when Becca and I met, um, super special time and I'm really thankful that we met because ultimately like now close to 20 plus years later you know uh, still together and yeah it's just been wonderful but um, when active duty I would reclass to infantry then go through special forces assessment and selection and ultimately spend most of my time on active duty in third special forces group as a green beret After my time in the military, I would do contracting for a couple more years, supporting special operations, still deploying. In total, I did seven combat deployments. And then in 2012, our son was born and I did one more deployment, but I knew that that was it. Like I needed to do something where I could be at home more. And once I got back from that deployment, about two months later, we had moved back to Texas and, and really for the last nine years, I've been pretty heavily involved in the veteran community, um, the veteran nonprofit world, several nonprofits, but um, most recently veterans exploring treatment solutions, also known as vets have been 
helping them out for almost a year now, which has been amazing. It's been such a, a blessing to be able to, to help vets, considering that I was a grant recipient myself of vets. Long, and it was never even a consideration in my mind that one day I would be working for vets. But um, it was such a life-changing ex- experience for me, uh, being a grant recipient of vets. And yeah, one thing led to another, and life continues on this upward trajectory. Great. Let's get a little bit about Becca's side of the story. So were y'all in close proximity as young people and then um, <laughs> inevitably met or did you come from across the world or across the country? What, what was your situation? So actually, I grew up in Houston, actually, like maybe 45 minutes from him. Uh, and actually, he used to work at a grocery store in kind of a, a town outside of Houston that like I used to go there with my family quite often. Uh, we probably have seen each other numerous times and just didn't know it. But uh, I grew up Catholic as well. Uh, I didn't go to church all the time uh, like Chris did. It wasn't until I was in high school that I actually chose to get baptized and you know receive my first communion and get confirmed kind of all in one because I was a little bit older. Uh, so my religious journey, I guess, starts a little bit later than than Chris's for sure. But yeah, once we met, I think our whole life story, you can see where God has kind of laid things out for us. And I mean, it's his plan. We're just living it. So uh, it's it's pretty cool to see in so many aspects of our lives. Yeah, I think of it, it reminds me of a story when... You know, when we first met, there was pretty well, I think, an instant connection. And but I, I told Becca that I was like, hey, we can hang out for the summer, but I'm going active duty. Like as soon as I sign a contract, you know, I'm gone. Well, let and- me rewind for a minute, because I was actually at a wedding and a mutual friend of ours called me and he was like, hey, there's this guy that I need you to meet. And I'm like, man, I'm at a wedding. Uh, I'm not leaving this wedding, you know, to come meet your friend. And he was like, no, I promise you, like, you need to meet this guy. So I leave this wedding uh, with one of my good friends at the time. And I go over to our buddy's house and wait around, wait around. And Chris never shows up. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm going home now. You know, like, it's been a long day already. I'm going home. And then like, right at that moment, Chris showed up and I was like, okay, maybe I'll stick around. I'll stick around for a little bit longer. Yeah, but um, when I I told her that, you know, this would be, this couldn't be any kind of long-term thing because I had this goal and what I wanted to do in the military. But I knew that, I mean, maybe a month or two into it, I knew that this was something more. But I went to go sign my contract to go active duty. And back then, people didn't have you know, smartphones, a smartphone wasn't a thing. Like people just didn't have cell phones like they do nowadays. And, and just know, for context, what, what time frame were we dealing with? Like 2000, somewhere around there? 2002. Yeah. 2000. Okay. We met in May, May of 2002. And then, yeah, you left in September, October, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So um, they put the contract in front of me and you know, they're like, hey, it's five years active duty and then another two years, maybe inactive reserve or something like that. I was like, okay, well, let me just make a phone call real quick. 
and I tried calling Becca and you know didn't get a hold of her so I went back in and then signed the contract and then later on we connected somehow and I told Becca that it's like hey I signed this contract you know it's five years with an additional two kind of thing and I don't know if you remember oh, I broke this. down like crying and yes. I was like I think I was like I can't do that like yeah yeah that's crazy you said I can't I can't do that like you know and um, when you're that age five years sounds like an eternity sure oh yeah I was a, a junior in high school at the time so going into my senior year so yeah that I mean never would have had a, a thought that yeah I'm gonna wait for this guy for you know five <laughs> years while he goes and you know does the the army thing yeah but the thing with with that was had I gotten a hold of Becca prior to signing like when I first called um and this ties back into what we we're saying before is that this path that God has us on is that if I had gotten a hold of Becca then before signing, like our lives would be vastly different. I, I mean, I most likely would not have gone active duty. And now she would have broke down before you signed instead of after. Right. I would have probably flipped a switch in your brain. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Maybe, maybe maybe I'll just go work at the local garage or stay at the grocery store for a while. Or <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. Life would be infinitely different for sure. That uh, Yeah. Falling in love has um, a way of changing our course in life. Yep. I can attest to that. So you're at an impasse at that point, kind of like you're you're destined to go off into the military. She's still in high school. So, you know, inevitably this involves a lengthy separation. How does that manifest? I think every relationship should go through long distance I mean, today it looks a lot different, uh, but I think we learned so much about e each other because that's all we could do was talk on the phone. And we just talked about everything, every aspect of our lives. You know, we were on the phone for hours and hours. And so we learned so much about each other. So I think that really helped us grow this foundation that, you know, we were living off of for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it because there's challenges <laughs> to long right. relationships, but for sure the communication piece. Yeah. It was, it was challenging, but um, yeah, definitely beneficial in some aspects. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, I graduated high school a year before my wife and I was, you know, working a dead, uh, dead end job at our, in our hometown. And uh, she got this full ride, you know, to a university um, a few hours away. And I thought, Hey, I've got a dead end job here. I might as well get a dead end job there and, yeah. uh, keep, keep this relationship connected. So I moved to that town and, uh, started working there. That's and awesome. I, yeah, I don't know. It's same, same situation. You know, we weren't as connected back then. We didn't have social media. We didn't have smartphones. You couldn't FaceTime every afternoon. You know, you, you had to, it, it seemed important that you had, you lived in close proximity to that person or it was going to put like this kind of existential stress on the relationship that is somewhat buffered by technology now. I mean, you know, we're out, we're hours and hours away and we're having a face-to-face -face conversation over uh, the blessings of technology here this morning. Oh, yeah. And it almost, I mean, with slight limitation, it almost seems like we're in the same room, you know? Right. Um, yeah. 
I think that those relationship dynamics are a little different than they were back then. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's interesting even looking back on deployments where, <laughs> yeah, just how we stayed in touch then. And because initially there was a maybe little there, messenger is yeah. I think how we started talking. Yeah, some kind of messenger. But I didn't service. have Wi-Fi, you know, and so my computer's in the other room and he would message me at like, I don't know, two, three in the morning, something like that. Like, so I was from the other side of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I would, I actually hooked up, we had like a surround sound uh, system. And so I hooked that up to the computer. So anytime he would ever log on, like I had it on full blast. So then (laughs) I could hear it from the other room so I could run in and catch him. So, yeah, it's funny to think back on how we used to try to communicate and I remember when I, we just were talking about this the other day, how I remember when I got a Blackberry for the first time, Mm -hmm. that was a game changer because before, if I would, if I wasn't home, like I didn't get to talk to him, you know, I had no way of, you know, instant messaging, you know, on whatever Nokia phone that I had, you know? And so when I got that Blackberry, I had internet, so it came straight to my phone so I could take a break from work and, and just go messaging back. It was, man. Those were the times. <laughs> we're starting to sound like old people, you know, walking the school <laughs> uphill both ways. Thing, yeah. <laughs> well, um, at that point in your lives, I mean, eventually we'll get into, you know, into psychedelics um, inevitably in this conversation. At that point in your lives, like what was your view of of kind of drugs, alcohol? What was your family's, you know, understanding of that? What kind of you know, thoughts and expectations did you have surrounding drugs and alcohol? Yeah, so I guess, I, you know, I grew up where, I mean, even up until recently to where, like, drugs were just the worst thing ever, you know, and like, the whole, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, the whole scrambled eggs thing, you know, all that, and where maybe even this thought of like, you could do drugs once and you're dead or, you know, or just like that kind of thought process. And, and so we were talking about this yesterday, I think, I mean, it was, may have been like six or seven years ago, give or take to where I heard of someone taking CBD for traumatic brain injury and headaches and things like that. And my first thought was, because this was someone else that came from the same special forces unit I was in and was a respected guy. And like hearing him taking CBD, I was like, man, this guy's turned into a total junkie, you know, like all this stuff. And, you know, CBD has no psychoactive effects. Like you can buy the stuff at the gas station, you know, like, but that was, that was my mindset, you know, for the longest time is that, these things are the worst thing ever, you know, bad for you, stay away from them. Whereas kind of alcohol was, was the opposite. And of course I have very different views on both uh, now. And, and actually I don't, I don't like when I talk about drugs, I don't even consider psychedelics in the drug category. We actually, I mean, really when we're talking about psychedelics for the most part 
Beck and I really use the, the term medicine or plant medicine, you know, because I mean, that's really how, at least how I see it is, it is a, it's a powerful medicine and like, just in, like any other medicine, like it needs to be treated with respect and, and not abuse it in any, any kind of way. Um, but yeah, growing up and even well into adulthood, I just thought anything drug related was just not even in consideration of, of doing. Um, but again, you know, I thought, I thought of alcohol in a different way and, and that totally led to abuse of alcohol and, you know, just it becoming a, a super negative substance in, in my life. Um, and, and thankfully, you know, since having gone through as a grant recipient with VETS, um, which was now a year and a half ago, uh, I have not had a drop of alcohol no, no caffeine, no caffeinated coffee, no energy drinks, any of that stuff. And I don't feel like I even really have to work too hard at it. You know, a lot of people will say like, oh man, it's great. You know, like you haven't drank in so long and it, and it is great, but I think people are saying it with, man, that takes a lot of effort to get to that point, you know, and really having gone through medicine really just changed everything for me. And I had the choice of, okay, do I want to drink going forward or not? And it was just one day, like, I don't feel like I need this. And then the next day came, it's like, I don't feel like I need this today either, which then turned into a week, which turned into a month. And now it's a year and a half later. And, and that's been a game changer for me, you know, in itself. Now I asked that question intentionally, like with using the word drugs because when we were young and obviously until just very recently like the term plant medicine nobody would have used that not anyone that was serious about their career or spiritual life i mean i'm sure some new age person was using plant medicine years ago but uh, that that verbiage but now people use it routinely in a thoughtful and respectable way like you can culturally people take that term serious now whereas 20 years ago you'd heard the word plant medicine you'd have been like oh yeah i know what you mean you know you're going out there getting your plant medicine you know <laughs> but uh becca was that similar with you like your your uh, upbringing did you all kind of view uh, drugs and alcohol through the you know normal traditional paradigm oh 100 yeah um drugs were like i never even had a thought like like you said, if you do, you know, one drug, you could die from that, you know, like that was always pounded into us from school and, you know, just society and as a whole. And so I, I never even had thoughts to, to do drugs. And it was interesting. Um, like I can't even get laughing gas at the, the dentist office, you know, like, I don't even like that feeling. So, like, why would I even want to do something that would, you know, alter me even more? Like, no, thanks. Uh, I'm good. But alcohol would, I mean, it was always around. I think there's a picture of me in my grandma's kitchen holding a pearl light, you know, and I was probably like, not even two years old with like pink boots, a diaper and, you know, a pearl light in my hand. Pearl light. <laughs> yeah. So my family, I mean, they're a bunch of Pollocks. So I grew up, <laughs> up with, you know, alcohol just all the time. So 
alcohol was a normal thing, but drugs were, that was definitely not at all for sure. Right. I dig into that because, you know, culture's different now. You know, there are people growing up, you know, in the same places as we did that have radically different views on these things now for better and worse, I believe. And, and most of what we, most of that information we grew up with probably helped us navigate, you know, a very challenging environment in regards to drugs. You know, I'm, in some ways, I'm glad that someone made me scared of meth and scared of crack. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, I think maybe those things have a place in the world, um, but it's not something you want to teach children to use. So it's interesting navigating these dynamics. But having said that, that is the way we often grow up with alcohol. You know, it's like it's just in the home and people are using it and it's no big deal. And so um, I, I, I just think it's important to kind of contextualize like a person's framing because, I mean, eventually we'll get get to the point where, you know, you all explain how you began to view these things through a different lens. That can often often be a a radical hurdle for us to overcome, to entertain the concept of something that has been so deeply steeped into us for generations that there's no positive element even possible there. Right. Well, before, before we get to that, though, tell me a little bit about your military career and how your life together progressed. So you're fixing to take off for five years. Uh, what's the girl do who's stuck in Houston? You know, <laughs> Yeah, Obviously, so, y'all are trying y'all are trying to keep up with each other through messaging and email and such as that. Yeah, so he was uh, he was slotted to go to the the Q course. So he was a eighteen X ray. So that meant he was going straight into like the special forces, uh, like training, you know, to become a Green Beret. So he had a lot of training leading up to actually going to group and and going and and. I guess going to war because this was 2002, right? So we met May, you know, 2002 or yeah, 2002. Uh, we got engaged uh, February of 2003. And then we ended up getting married September of 2004. So in 2004, like right after we got married, I moved to North Carolina and I think he even said like, you should probably stay here. Cause I think that was, he was about to report to group once uh, we got done with our honeymoon and everything. Can I tell this part of the story? Sure. This, <laughs> this is, I tell this, I tell this story all the time and I told it to some stranger recently. Uh, I don't know, like couldn't have been through the airport or anything. I don't know, but um, it's one of my favorite stories, but uh, we'll see how much it resonates with others. People seem to like just, okay, whatever, but I love it. I had finished the special forces qualification course and in between completing the course and signing into third special forces group, we got married and we got married in Texas. And I told Becca that I was like, Hey, you can come with me to North Carolina, but I could sign into group and deploy right away. I don't know, you know, I, I could be home for six months or I could be deploying right away. And Becca said to me, 
that she's like, well, even if you deploy right away, that's more time. If I come with you, that's more time that I get to spend with you. And she wanted to come up. And, you know, my thing was like, you know, I could deploy right away. And now you're in this town, you know, like kind of no support network, no family. I was 19 at the time also. And so I signed into group and we moved all our stuff up and less than two weeks later I was deployed. And when I came home uh, from that deployment, Becca had, you know, closed on a house, moved all of our stuff into this house, decorated it and everything. And, And I knew that I knew before, but this was just another like, you know, indicator that, okay, like Becca is, is totally committed to this thing. And, and I I knew that before, but it was just very much showing her commitment and love to our relationship. And I thought for me, that was a really special thing, you know, because I mean, she could have totally just gone home, you know, back to Texas and, and that would have been completely reasonable you know, considering, but, um, she stuck it out and this would kind of repeat over the next decade or so of me deploying, coming home, being gone for training, deploying for training, you know, in the special operations community, our deployments are generally shorter than the conventional military. But it wasn't until I was getting out of the army that I started to look back and see that it's like, okay, maybe this was like a six or a nine month deployment. But before that, I was gone for a month for a shorter trip. Two weeks before that, I was gone for two months, you know, like, and just, you know, kind of continuing to back up the timeline. It's like, man, over the last two years, I was at home for a couple months combined. And so, I was always gone and Becca totally supported me through that. And actually, before we got married, I don't know if we've talked about this since, but one of the things that I said was uh, because, you know, it's very much a life and death situation, you know, the, the type of work that I was doing. And I told her that, like, my priorities have to be number one is God, number two has to to be my job and then like I would have to put her third because if I'm if I change the order of those in any way then you know if I'm not putting God first or if I'm not putting my work up up there you know next then it could result in the loss of my life or someone else's life and which is kind of interesting to think about the thought process during that time. But um, I mean, it's it's very real, the the intensity of it. I mean, everything that you're doing stateside and overseas, you know, is directly, you know, attributed to someone's life or or your own. And so, um, yeah. In some ways by putting your, putting her, and this is this can be abused to justify unhealthy relationship dynamics. But in some ways, by putting the person further down on the list, you're actually elevating them to the top of the list. 
you know, if, if you're not taking your career of extreme, your, your career in particular, of extreme intense focus, you could lose your life, which negatively impacts your loved ones. So right. sometimes directing our focus towards work for a period of time is actually the investment that we have to make for those we love. It's not, it's not always like a direct tiered system, like, sorry, honey, you're number three and uh, (laughs) uncle Sam's number two, but uh, you know, that's, you know, it's not exactly a one for one kind of thing. So that makes, that makes, that makes sense. Well, I know it's going to be difficult to sum up, you know, 10 years of experience in the military and family life, but were there particular, you know, deployments that were very impactful on you as an individual or your relationship dynamics or, or things of that nature? Uh, I wouldn't say, maybe Becca might have a different answer, but I wouldn't say that there was one single deployment that maybe shifted things or anything. I would say that over time, just continuing to stack the number of deployments. Yeah, I mean, there there ended up being a shift for sure. Um, but, I, you know, it's kind of difficult because, you know, I mean, there's tragic things that happen on every single deployment. Um, and actually, I would kind of describe it as, you know, like you could look at, at as a at a negative perspective is that, you know, loss of life and things like that, which is an awful thing, but you also get to experience, I think the opposite, which is, you know, it may be extreme feelings of maybe sadness or feelings of this particular mission. I'm not going to make it out of, you know, like this is my, I will not live past this, you know, um, and, and the opposite of that is feeling extreme feelings of, I mean, one is definitely love and it's not so much in this like touchy feely type way, but the sacrifice that you and others are making for each other, it is, that is an intense feeling of, of love and, and it's unspoken. And I don't think there's many situations in life where you can sacrifice yourself for someone else. And to me, that's just a, a tremendous feeling of love. So if you think about the different emotions on the whole scale, like the extremes of all of those, and, and I do think that you compound enough of, and not, not everyone, but at least for myself, living in a space where you are constantly analyzing if whatever person is a threat or not, and, and that's what's keeping you safe, you are on alert continuously. That probably does something to the brain that's, that's not healthy. It just creates this pattern that the brain decides like, okay, if I need to be safe, I need to be constantly alert, hypervigilant. And then it just gets stuck there. And I would say after a number of deployments, I'm sure that happened, but I can't point to a single deployment that right. that became a thing. And 
which then results in wanting to control a lot of things because you know if you can control the situation you know that's keeping people safe and all of these things don't translate into the civilian world and then when you can't control it and you're trying to and for me a lot of things manifested in the way of extreme anger and uh, that was my way of controlling the situation and my way of really expressing emotion, I would say that that became like one of the few emotions that I would utilize because in combat, anger is a great emotion, you know, utilized properly is, is, is really useful. But again, in the civilian world, it, it just doesn't carry over. Well, it's a shortcut. I mean, you can address the problem directly, you know, in times of extreme necessity of, of extreme action, you know, that, that emotion, it's a survival tool, you know, oh, anger yeah, totally. allows you to make rapid decisions and it allows you to translate the gravity of the situation to those around you, you know, because when you're expressing anger, the people around you pick up on that. They recognize the seriousness of the situation. It's almost like a telepathic tool in a way, because you're able to relate gravity of the situation to those around you in proximity to you, which is probably very useful on the battlefield. But when you bring that mentality home, it's right. probably a whole different can of worms to navigate because you know, you're in a situation, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Like it's it's the cumulative exposure of having that being your day-to-day walking consciousness is extreme vigilance and oftentimes using extreme emotion to carry you through a potentially deadly situation. So it would make sense that a person would adopt a certain frame of, of addressing day-to-day life through that system when that, you know, that's what you have to do. But the rest of us, you know, back here at home doing our day-to-day jobs, our family life, we're fortunate to not have to navigate the world in that way. Yeah. And and to give you another example is uh, I was recently reminded of, of the story. I hadn't thought about it in a really long time is that one of the bases that I was at, you know, it's pretty remote, actually very remote. Most of our supplies were, were bundle dropped because um, it was too dangerous to any kind of convoy to drive up to where we're at um, because of the IED threat, ambush threat. So everything was dropped via a parachute into our base. And, you know, it's a little tiny base. And on a daily basis, the enemy was communicating over um, kind of like a walkie-talkie type radio, right? You know, there's no cell phone coverage, so that was their means of communication. And on a daily basis, the enemy was observing us and communicating whatever we were doing all day, almost all day long. You know, there were breaks here and there. If you we're getting ready to go on a mission or anything like that, you know, from the mountains, they're observing from somewhere, the activity that's going on in the base. And as soon as like, you're getting ready to go on a mission, they're communicating that. So like the enemy is observing you nonstop. And 
you know, that results in them being able to plan attacks whenever you leave the base or, or react in some way, or for them to coordinate attacks on the base, you know, so, so that's the type of environment that, I mean, that's not even getting into just going on an actual mission and everything that takes place on that, you know, you haven't left the wire yet and um, the enemy is continually reporting on you. So that's the kind of the level of alertness and environment, you know, that, that you're in and every single day that is the case. And I think over time, uh, out of like what you mentioned, just this is a survivability thing. The brain just gets stuck in a certain mode. I mean, I didn't, I didn't realize this at the time, but um, some people, uh, there's a, a single event could be on their first deployment that totally changes things. And uh, I think for me, it was just the number of deployments and things just continually stacking that probably didn't even really recognize until I was totally done with, with that life that, okay, things aren't exactly how they should be. Like something's off. What kind of support network spiritually did both of you have during that time? You know, I'm assuming on the battlefield, spiritual life gets compartmentalized to its most elemental necessity. (laughs) Um, You know, you don't have time for holding hands and singing and prayer meetings, I would assume. Um, when so much is on the line. But back home, um, what kind of support network does Becca have? Yeah, so I worked a lot. Uh, Really, that's how I got through a lot of that was uh, I threw myself into my job. And so I ended up becoming a pastry chef. And so, I mean, I was was just constantly working. I mean, that kept me busy. I actually don't know if I even went to church that often, uh, but I learned very quickly, very early on that I needed to leave things to God. Like I had no control what happened to him over there. Like it was in God's hands. And so I, after learning that my life got easier because I didn't have to worry as much um, because I knew that, you know, whatever was going to happen, that was God's plan. And yeah, how can you argue with that, right? So, so yeah, I definitely learned that pretty early on, and that I mean that changed my life because again, like I didn't have to like I think his first maybe deployment, maybe couple of deployments, like I would take Nyquil to go to sleep. Like, there's no way that I I would have been able to sleep without some kind of medication, and so. Yeah, learning on that I could lean on God for help was was huge. And I mean, definitely made my life so much easier. But I again, I didn't I don't ever remember really going to church that often, but I definitely had a strong prayer life for sure. Uh, cuz that was the only way to to get me through that. What about on the the battlefield, CT? What was uh what was it like out there? Yeah, so all of my deployments, with the exception of maybe two, were in really, really remote places. There's only one deployment did a chaplain come out to one of the fire bases that I was at, which was a pretty short stay. And 
I mean, this is, I'm, I'm not trying to put any fault on them. Like where we're at was super dangerous. Like it didn't make sense to, and I could, I'd see in the military's eyes to fly the single chaplain out and, you know, risk to other personnel and aircraft and everything else. And so like, and there's just so many bases that our chaplain could visit and, you know, in the amount of time and, but um, I have a strong memory of the one time that a chaplain did come out and yeah, he taught me things about prayer that I still use today. And that was probably one of the most significant things that I took away from, from that visit. But, um, um, and he brought like crosses and rosaries and miniature Bibles and, and things like that. Uh, which was great. And I would carry uh, a rosary and a cross on just about every single mission that I went on. Uh, I actually have uh, one of the crosses that I was given uh, tattooed on my ankle just because this cross became something very special to me because it had been on so many missions and, and, and deployments. And um, I, I don't carry it with me the actual physical object anymore. I still have it, but I don't carry it with me every day, but I have that tattoo as a, a reminder of it. But, um, you know, there was no chapel or any place for any kind of religious service where I was at just because, I mean, everything was so geared towards war, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't really the space for that, both time and physical space, you know. So, um, but for me, prayer for sure. And some of the toughest times is when I did the most praying, you know, it was never far from my mind, um, my faith. I can remember, you know, I didn't, I didn't call home much at all. And I didn't really call many other people like outside of Becca, you know, I might would call my parents once or twice a deployment, something like that. But uh, I can remember my mom saying something along the lines of like, you know, don't forget to pray. And I'm like, for me, I was like, like, you have no idea. I've prayed the hardest I've ever prayed in my life, you know, like on some of these trips, like I'm not forgetting, <laughs> you know, I want my teammates and myself to all come out of this thing, you know, so but uh, but back home, like when I wasn't gone for training or deployments, like we were going to church pretty regular. We would go on post for the most part earlier on. And then when we moved further away from the military installation, we would just go to church in the local town there. But yeah, for me, it, it was on my mind, um, even though there wasn't an actual church or chapel or anything like that to go into or service to attend. So at what point did you begin to entertain an end to your military career? Uh, that's a long story, uh, but I'll give you the short version is that um, my team time uh, was coming to an end. And, you know, in the, the Q course, special force qualification course, which can be anywhere from somewhere between a year and two years, depending on the different types of training that each person gets. Um, well, they need 
Green Berets with recent and relevant experience. And so after a certain amount of time on a team, they want to rotate you to go back and teach guys who are wanting to become Green Berets. And, and that's the situation that I fell into later on my time on active duty was that I was, I wanted, I just wanted to stay on a team and was continuing to dodge this bullet of going back to, to teach. And at the time, it was a pretty immature way of looking at it because I totally would have grown as a person going back and, and teaching future Green Berets. And I, I feel would have done a lot to develop those guys as well and set them up for success. But in a way, I mean, you could look at it as being selfish as like, I just wanted to stay on a team, but also too, I wanted to be there for my teammates. You know, like I felt like there were certain skills that I wanted to be able to offer that for my teammates when we were deployed. And again, it's a long story, but um, I was not going to be able to continue to dodge going back to the schoolhouse and teaching. And, you know, my team time was coming to an end. So um, I decided to, to get out and on a Friday, I cleaned all of my stuff out of the team room. Monday was Veterans Day. And then Tuesday, I was working on another part of um, post as a, as a contractor and then in a supporting role for, for special operations. And, and then did that for a couple of years. And then, but like I said earlier, the birth of our son in 2012, well, when Becca was pregnant, I was like, okay, that's it. Like we sold our house, sold a car, um, just started like preparing to transition to something that would put me at home a little bit more in like a more safe and stable home life. Right. I imagine no strong, involved young man, you know, dreams of the desk job. You know, it's like that seems really lame and unimportant you know, when you've been out there on the battlefield for so many years, it's probably a, a challenging transition to envision going back and returning to the civilian world and, and just being a teacher or an instructor. Um, I imagine that's a, an emotionally challenging, you know, situation to navigate. Yeah. If I was, if I were in those shoes today, I would look at it very differently. Like right. I'm, I'm happy the path that I took, but um but now I would see it as, okay, what are the positives in this? And I think there's a lot of just different growth that could come out of that and, and benefit for, for other folks. Like I said, the, you know, future Green Berets, the Special Forces candidates. But now you're beginning family life with, uh, with a child. So how does that manifest? So you return back stateside and... Yeah, so we we moved back to Texas, and I would say that was about when the wheels came off. They were coming off. Uh, I <clears throat> Becca agrees. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I would say um, the military time. Like we both had a job to do, right? So we were very occupied with that. To where that was easy compared to the transition that was hard. That's probably the hardest thing that I've had to do in my life is go through that transition with him for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, that's a good way of putting it is that nothing compared to that transition 
nothing in the military compared to that transition for sure, um, which I think says a lot. And I would really struggle for a long time. I would say it's like close to a decade, you know, a um, little less, eight or nine years, something like that. And I mean, things would get better, but I, I was continually working on myself quietly. Like I was not saying anything uh, about what I was dealing with or anything like that really to anybody, but I was quietly working on myself. I went through so many different things through, through the VA, all kinds of different medications, went outside the VA, you know, a lot of like non-traditional, or I guess it's more traditional in a way, like everything from acupuncture to different types of meditation. I'm very into meditation now, but I was just not in the space to be able to implement it at, you know, years back, you know, other things outside of the VA. At one point I was up at the Cleveland clinic, you know, where they're taking like a gallon of my blood and trying to figure out all these things. And can I ask what kind of symptoms were you experiencing? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say <clears throat> is a number of things, anger, the hypervigilance, you know, depression, inability to sleep, memory, yeah, mem memory loss, uh, you know, short-term memory issues. Yeah, I mean, and then there's, you know, trying to find some relief in that, which mainly came in the form of alcohol, which was not not helping anything. Yeah, I mean, there there are a long list of of things, and I mean so many things like I would get to this place to where in some ways really wanting to kind of isolate myself, which is not healthy at all. I, I, I fought it a lot and I think I, I did so in a good way. And, you know, a lot of this was totally underneath the surface and I would say most people had no idea that, you know, I was just, in a tough place. Yeah, to put context to that, I think, you know, once, you know, he went and uh, became a grant recipient through the vets and, you know, he came back and we were slowly starting to tell some people. And I remember one person in particular was like, well, why would he do that? There was nothing wrong with him. And I was like, oh, you have no idea. You know, like he hid things really well. And, and I think it's not only just hiding things, it was, uh, especially from the soft community, if you take guys that are really high performers, and if you're performing at like 20% of your 100 to the average person, it still looks like, oh, this guy's crushing it, you know? Right. And the reality is every check engine light is on and that car just may be like a Ferrari, but right. every tire is flat and every light is on, but it's still a Ferrari. Like, oh man, this is still an amazing car, you know? And so I think that's one aspect of it too. And then a fault to myself is that it's like, I don't really want to ask for help. And, and all I did was just delay the process, I think, is just 
trying to figure it out on my own, which is not, it's not the preferred method for sure. Right. Yeah. I'm a recovering do it yourselfer. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the, either the cumulative amount or the, or the real linchpin that sends you looking for something outside of the medical context? Yeah. So like I said, I've been working on myself continuously. I mean, I still do lots of reading on just general health, you know, now it's in a different context. Now it's like, okay, like how can I continue to grow as a person and what are little things that I can change in my life that will continue to make me better uh, and I, I just, I love that. I love learning more about just overall health. Uh, but then it was out of necessity. It's like trying to figure out what I can do to kind of fix what's going on. What are other things that, you know, people are doing, whether military or not. And I was on this journey and I'm in a, I'm still in a Facebook group that is geared towards special operations guys and just overall health. Sometimes there's information put in there about like cancer or it's about sleep or it's what somebody did to overcome whatever. And um, it's really fascinating stuff. And one day there was a blog that someone had shared about ayahuasca and how it was very healing for them. And that really kind of opened the door for me to like, cause I never heard of it. I was like, I've never heard of whatever this ayahuasca stuff is. And I started doing more and more research and which led me to learning about not only ayahuasca, but psilocybin, MDMA, you know, 5-MeO-DMT, all of these other uh, psychedelics and the potential healing benefits that could come from them. So then I, you know, like I, I felt I hadn't exhausted every other option, but I sure had tried so many different conventional methods and even some unconventional and just really wasn't moving the needle much. And the more I read about psychedelics, the more I saw people actually getting true benefit from them. And so through another nonprofit, I had applied to do ayahuasca and I was slated to, I had plane tickets bought. I was slated to go in January of 2021 and have my negative COVID test prior to flying, you know, that's 72 hours. And then the whole country of Peru shut down at that point because of a COVID, you know, flare up or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of killed that at the time. <clears throat> but the guy who was, you know, making all of these connections for me, you know, reached out a few months later. He's like, hey, I have an opportunity for you to do Ibogaine if you wanted. And I was like, what is Ibogaine? Like, I've spent so much time researching, you know, all of these different psychedelics, but I'd never heard of Ibogaine. And what I learned was that, you know, it comes from the iboga shrub that grows in Western Africa. And 
and is a really, really powerful psychedelic. Like I would consider out of the plant psychedelics, probably one of the most powerful. And, and I also learned that there wasn't a whole lot of information on Ibogaine either. You know, at that time there wasn't a whole lot of studies and, but I did learn that it had benefits for heroin addicts, like amazing relief that a lot of heroin addicts were able to, to receive from going through Ibogaine. But um, in this kind of a long story that didn't end up working out, but um, you know, I was told to maybe you should apply for a grant through, through vets, through veterans exploring treatment solutions. And I looked at the site and, and I'd actually found them whenever I was researching Ibogaine, but I was like, ah, you know, I don't know if this is like, a good fit for me. It seems like maybe this is geared towards seals, you know, and I'm a green beret, you know, that maybe this is specific for seals. And I learned that, that it's not, that it is open to the broader special operations community. And so I applied and thought, okay, somebody just recommended me to do that as kind of like this consolation prize, like, Hey, I can't help you out anymore with doing Ibogaine, but you should apply here. And, you know, it's someone else's problem now kind of thing. And, and I kind of forgot about it. And a couple of weeks later, I got notification that I was accepted as a grant recipient and would then, you know, start preparing to go. And um, along the way, while I was waiting for my treatment date, Another guy that I was in third special forces group with was visiting Texas and Beck and I got to visit him and his family and typical stuff that guys would do is that like me and him are sitting on a, on, on the beach with like a case of beer and just pounding beer, you know, all day long kind of thing. And, um, but from that conversation, like he was really honest with me in that, you know, some things were we're off with him too. And I was like, Hey man, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, like I've run the gamut of it, you know? And he was recently retired too, by the way. And I had obviously been out for a while at this point. And I was like, I've run the gamut and I, I really don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to do this thing, this Ibogaine thing. And, um, I don't know, maybe you should look into it too. And it sounds like it could be beneficial. And I'm so thankful that we had that conversation because my friend ended up applying and we ended up um, actually doing medicine the same time together. Like we had the same treatment date and, and, and went through medicine together. And it was life-changing is an understatement. Uh, I mean, it really impacted me in the most positive way. And all of these things that I was dealing with before, it, it freed me of that. And, you know, and I, I want to say this too, because people can get the impression that this is a magic pill. And, and I swear I had to sign something with vets on this as a grant recipient that saying that I understand this is not a magic pill kind of thing. I swear I had to sign a document on that. But that is the truth. Like, I feel that it gave me the space that I needed to be able to make the decisions 
that I want it to make going forward. So all of the work that I've done post-medicine is really what has kept me in this good place and like kept my life on this like positive upward trajectory. I do feel that there are some aspects, you know, traumatic brain injury wise that like there's evidence now that shows that, that Ibogaine does have some healing effects of the brain, like, you know, beyond the psychological aspect of it, but, you know, physiological healing effects of the brain. And I, I do feel that, that I, I personally benefited from that aspect as well. Um, in addition to just all of the trauma that saw in the military and everything else, but it was really someone else that happened to write a blog about ayahuasca and the healing they received from it that caused me to look further into what these medicines could offer. And, and, and I haven't really thought about in this context. I actually owe that person a whole lot. I have, I have a, two questions. It sounds like, at least for you, warming up to this idea of using medicine was by reading about like the cumulative impact it made on many people in the veteran and special forces community. And that kind of was like a slow convincing effect for you to entertain this as a, as a modality. And Becca, were you just pretty much on board with anything that might help him? I've always, I mean, throughout our time together, it's whatever he wants to do, unless it's super crazy, like I'm fully supportive of it, you know, and I know he does his research. He's not going to go and do something totally crazy. So I didn't understand it, but I knew that he was, he was running out of options and he needed, he needed something. So you, you and your, and your, your friend, y'all got accepted to whatever degree you're comfortable. Like, what did that treatment look like? What kind of experience did you have? Yeah, so the the treatment was you would do ibogaine, and then a certain time period afterwards would do five meo DMT, which is five methoxy dimethyltryptamine, which um, comes from well now there's synthetic, but there's also the organic, which comes from a toe that's natural to a part of Mexico and maybe southern Arizona, and so ibogaine. My experience was actually in 5-MEO as well. In some ways, you know, they were challenging experiences. My Ibogaine experience I found was, it was actually really difficult. But I, I do want to say too that difficult doesn't mean bad, you know. It, but um, I had visuals for, it's hard to judge time, but I would say somewhere between maybe six and eight hours or so. And uh, some of the guys in my group, you know, it might've been closer to 20 hours. The, they had, had visuals. And I mean, I can go pretty in depth on this, but kind of at a high level, I had thought, you know, cause there, there was a lot of instruction leading up to it at the treatment center, which was great. And kind of gave you an idea of a little bit of what to expect and, you know, they said it could take 
30 minutes for it to start taking effect, or it could take three hours, just depending on the person. And when I laid down, I was like, okay, I'm going to be the guy that it takes three hours. You know, I'm going to be here for a while before this takes effect or whatever. And it seemed very, very soon that I started to feel what I would describe as like these heavy blankets that were being laid on top of me. Like one heavy blanket would be laid on top of me and then, and then another would come. And, um, and then I knew I was like, okay, this is starting to, to take effect. Just one, one point to clarify for the audience, this is not a modality that's available inside the United States. You had to go probably to Mexico, I assume. That's correct. Yeah. So that, I'm glad and, you and if you could explain briefly, like, was this an oral application or something you get through an IV or, you know, people might, I mean, Ibogaine is something I think even a lot of people in the psychedelic community aren't really familiar with. So yeah, just briefly, if you could explain like, the outside the United States thing and the route of application. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So all of the psychedelic treatment that I was reading about and then I even personally experienced, it was, it's all totally legal. Like the stuff that I'd read about and some of the research that's out there, you know, it's these clinical environments, it's very limited studies, um, that some of it has been done in the States, but, um, for Ibogaine and 5-MeO, because they're considered schedule one, which means there's no medicinal value and potential for abuse, which I know both of those to be inaccurate. And, and truthfully, like if I were to categorize something as schedule one, alcohol would be something that's total schedule one, you know? And, and not Ibogaine and 5-MeO. But for these treatments, you have to leave the country because it's not legal in the U.S., which is, is kind of unfortunate considering it's now VETS has provided grants for hundreds of special operations guys. And, you know, they're having to leave the country that they served in order to get treatment. And there's a lot of like progress and I think a lot of movement on the legislative side of things. And I think that just takes time. But, but for now, we are having to go outside of the country. And I also want to include this too, is that it's not something that you're going to um, some random dude's house, you know, that is, has like these medicines or whatever. You know, there's a lot of medical screening leading up to it. Everything from I had to do blood work beforehand. When you get there and, and there's a, a nurse or a doctor that you work with before you leave that does a whole medical intake, you know, and screening. And when you get down to Mexico, there's more medical screening that you do, uh, urinalysis, um, EKG. And while you are on Ibogaine, you actually have an IV port in, um, you're hooked up to heart monitor stuff, you know, there's sensors on your body and everything that are taking all these measurements and, and you're being, in my case, being observed by a doctor or nurse <clears throat> at every second of um, while you're going through the medicine. 
but it it is it's given um, uh, based off body weight. You know, they determine dosing based off your body weight, but then um, it's in in pill form is what you end up taking the ibogaine. But yeah, so <clears throat> once you're on it, observing someone who's on ibogaine for the most part, it looks like they're just laying there and having the most peaceful nap ever. But in reality, the mind is, it's working. Like there is serious work being done behind the scenes. And, and for me, I really could spend hours talking about this and I'm going to do my best to just hit some of the wave tops. You, you feel free to, to go as long or as short as you need to. You know, I, I think oftentimes we get kind of berated with these quote unquote trip reports, but um, I think it's important to convey how impactful this experience was. So, you know, to whatever degree you're able and willing to delve into that, I think it, it's helpful in, in understanding, you know, comprehensively, what a person, you know, might reconcile with during, during an experience like this. Yeah. So the one thing that I can say that is consistent is that it's different for everybody. I've heard so many stories now, and I don't think there's one that's the same. Like there's some commonalities that I've, and this is all anecdotal, um, that I've noticed in some ways, like a spiritual aspect. I've noticed that there's quite a few people that have interacted with God, Mary, Jesus, and I find those, those stories to be just fantastic. Like they're just really amazing to hear in the, in the power that, um, how powerful those, um, those visuals and things that people have. Mine was not, not that. Um, I actually at a certain point even asked to see Jesus at one point. And I was shown kind of like a card that was, you know, that you would use as a bookmark in a Bible kind of thing in a picture of Jesus. Like, like it was kind of like this, like, you want to see Jesus? I'll show you Jesus. Okay, now let's get back to work. You know, we have work to, to do. And a majority of my experience was there was a, a female guide that was taking me through, I don't even know how, how many lessons, hundreds of lessons, could be over a thousand, but they were all, for the most part, teaching me something. She would show me something in maybe video form or image, still image, and I would have to, have to convey what I learned from that. And um, some of these, these were, things from within your life or, or outside or a mixture of the two. Uh, yeah, they, they were from, from my life, some from, from the past, some just showing me something as a teaching point, you know? And so, I mean, at this point, like, I mean, there were so many that even while I was going through it, like we'd finish one lesson and we were right into the next one. And like, I was trying to make a mental note of like, oh, I have to remember this. And like, I was like, wait, 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 like not the next one just yet. Let me like try and like sear this lesson into my brain. And then she's showing me the next, next thing. And we're going through it. And these were 
really, really difficult for me. Um, I'd say more so on a physical sense. Like my body was looking back on it, like it was probably releasing all of this trauma that was stored into my body. And it was just not a pleasant way in, in that coming out, I guess, because I felt tremendous tension in my upper body, extreme discomfort in my upper body. And as we're going through each of these, it felt like my heart rate was like, you know, you know, these were challenging, you know, working through them. Like my heart rate would like just continue to build as like we're working through these like one after another. And then I'd have to like really focus on my breathing to like bring my heart rate back down. And, and this guide is just continually like, you know, let's go, like, let's go to the next one kind of thing. And, but to give you an example of one of these, and this is probably one of the most significant that I experienced was, and it's, it's emotional. So it's, it, it'll take me a little bit to get through, but um, at one point she showed me this monster, like this, like hairy, like Chewbacca looking monster thing. And this monster is yelling profanities at me and telling me that I suck. That basically just telling me that I am just a rotten, no good type person. That I am just, um, I can't repeat it because of the profanities in it, but just know that it was just the harshest thing that you could say to a person. And I told her, I was like, that doesn't bother me. You know, I was like, this is what bothers me. And I took myself and put myself in front of myself. <clears throat> and it was me saying those same words to myself. Take your time. And what it taught me was I apologize because it's, it's it just no takes a little bit to get out because no uh, worries. And I've come to learn that I'm so envious of people who can cry and talk at the same time because I cannot. <laughs> I wish I could. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, I learned that over such a long period of time, I had developed this really negative inner voice. I had come to hate myself. Um, and, man, it was just so intense, this negative voice that I had for myself. And it is unreal that I was able to do anything considering just how much I was constantly like, you're not good enough. Like, oh, they're doing it so much better than you. Like just <clears throat> this horrific negative voice in myself, just a terrible negative mindset. And what she was 
showing me and what I was showing myself is that that's really what is like, that is really a problem. And, um, and all of these lessons, like there were so many that were negative, just like this one. And we would take that negative lesson and ultimately it would go down way far in the ground. And there's a guy down there that would pull a lever and it would just shoot this thing up to the sky. And there would be like little fireworks of each of these negative things that we killed. And with this one, this negative version of myself, like I was so angry at this version of myself and just wanted to kill this version of myself. And when it went away in the same process and then was shot up into the sky, instead of fireworks, like the entire sky was a fireball, like this nuclear explosion of destroying this version of myself. And, um, you know, um, and so that's an example of one of the things that we went through. That was, that was the most probably significant one. And, and there's much more along the way, but when I, um, I actually was asking the medicine for a break. Like I needed a break. Like it was just because we just kept going and going and going. And along the way, she would show me this vault and she's like, this is really the lesson you need to learn behind this one. But like, this is the big one. This is like really difficult, you know? And I'm like, oh, like I'm smoked already after like two or three of these, you know? And I was like, well, let me like get the hang of this some more. Like, let me get in more of a rhythm. We'll come back to it. She would show me again, like a couple lessons later. And then I was like, I really did not want to do it because I knew it was going to be really, really hard and difficult. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And she's like, no, you're not ready yet. You know? And I was like, okay. And then, you know, this process will repeat. And then I got to the point where it's like, this is getting harder and harder and harder. And these lessons are getting more and more difficult. Like, if I go through this vault, this is going to kill me, like whatever this is, you know, it's going to be so hard. And so I kept pushing it away at this point over and over again. And then, um, and then it was just getting so difficult that I was like, I need a break. Like I have to take a break. Like, just give me like three seconds. Like, and the whole time she's like, no, don't look away, stay in this. But I was just, like I couldn't, like I needed a break. And, and so I told her it was just going to be three seconds, but then that turned into like 30 seconds. And I'm like, okay, I'm finally like getting some relief. And then when I came back, it was just this big screen that was there, which is kind of how it started out. Like if you think about like a huge movie screen kind of thing, and it was black. And I'm like, okay, like I'm ready. Like, Hey, I'm here. I'm back. Let's go. You know, nothing's happening. And I'm like, no, I I really need to do the vault thing. Like I came here. I need to get everything out of this that I can. I need to be in a better place. And 
nothing's happening. The screen is just black. And then I'm like banging on the screen. I'm like just trying to problem solve. Like, how can I get her to come back and like bring the vault back? Like, let's like finish this, you know? And I couldn't. And eventually the screen goes away. <clears throat> and now all my visuals are gone. And from what I can tell, um, I was the first one to come out of the medicine and no longer have visuals. And I then lay there in agony for hours, just beating myself up because I actually feel worse. I feel worse than when, before I did Ibogaine, I feel the lowest I've ever felt in my entire life. I was hating myself. I was like, you had this long list of intentions and questions that you wanted to cover in the medicine. You didn't do one of them. Like you wasted this opportunity because you didn't do this. Now you feel worse. And like for hours, I just beat myself up just, you know, I, I was being so, so hard on myself. And um, when the sun came up, you know, and, and there were, uh, like these coaches, supporters that would come in from time to time, just checking on us. And during the night, I didn't, I didn't grab one of them for whatever reason. But once the sun came up and the first person that came in, one of the like supporters, you know, um, I grabbed them and I was like, Hey, I got to talk to somebody about this. Like right now, I, I feel like I messed it up. I, wasted it you know like all these things and everybody's different but for the next like I would say at least three hours I talked to two different of these individuals holding space you know these supporters and just poured everything out and that was my way of processing everything and then I kind of took a break from talking to them and they kind of took a break from listening, I guess, because it had to, I can't imagine like those people seem to be like, they are, some people are gifted at holding space for us. Totally. Yeah. No, in a way I see them as like, I don't know, like, oh man, you know, like, like a gift, from, a gift from God, you know, and, and, and I, and I truly think they have a gift, but uh, yeah, I can't imagine, like, I'm sure they weren't thinking this, but if I was them, I'd be like, bro, I got to take a break from listening to all this stuff. But, uh, but we kind of took a break and another person came in and I talked to her, you know, like for who knows how long and kind of talking through more of this stuff and just processing it. And it was really at that point that 
I was in a different space. I was in, for lack of a better term, experienced miraculous healing and, and could feel it, you know, you know, I had, you know, I was really cautious about who we talked to about afterwards, all of this, because I had planned to take my benefits and then go live my life, you know, and not say anything. And, but I did not expect them to, the benefits to be so great. And I told someone about this and the question they asked me, they're like, do you think when you're on the medicine that you're interacting with God or an angel or something like that? And I can't say that that is true for me and that's fine. But what I can say is that this as a whole was a gift from God. Um, what I was given, the, <clears throat> the experience, even though it was really challenging um, and difficult, you know, the experience immediately after seeing visuals was just as a whole, the whole thing was a gift that I feel came from God. And like I said, I <clears throat> began to experience miraculous healing and it's just, and it's been, been life-changing. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause there because then that was kind of my Ibogaine experience. And I, and I guess I'll add this too, is that we were told that, you know, Ibogaine can be a stimulant and you may not sleep after Ibogaine, in which I didn't. Um, I was awake for a couple of days straight, and but I didn't care. Like that first night after Ibogaine, I couldn't sleep and I didn't care. And I just laid there and I thought about, you know, the experience the all of the insights that I was given um, and and I really didn't even understand what my life could be going forward i didn't I didn't understand how great it was it was going to be, but I just knew things were not what they were before and and if that meant like I wasn't gonna sleep immediately then that's okay. You know, like, like I had love and compassion for myself, gratitude for myself. And before I probably would have been pissed at myself. Like, why are you not sleeping? You know? And there I was just able to lay in the space of like, just it's okay. You know? And for the first time when I got back home, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, I was able to, to sleep like a normal human. Like I can fall asleep at night to this day, no problem. I can stay asleep. And I mean, so many of things, like if I just got that, it'd have been totally worth it. You know, that by itself was just a, such a game changer for me. And I know I've said that about a couple of things now, but um, 
like to go through life without being able to sleep or being able to stay asleep, it just wrecks you. And the only way I was able to find sleep was through, you know, pills through the VA, which I know is not real sleep. You're not getting REM sleep. It's a sedative. Same thing with alcohol. You're not getting restful sleep. But these were the only things that I was able to get sleep for whatever reason, like something in my brain was broken. I don't know, you know, being on, could have been not having a real sleep schedule on some of these deployments, being on reverse sleep cycle where you're sleeping during the day and awake at night for so much. And then even that not being consistent and doing that over such a long period of time, could that have broken it? I don't know. But either way, I would ultimately, after getting back home and stuff, I would find sleep. And a part of that is a lot of the things that I do post-medicine is that I'm very extremely protective of my sleep now because I know how valuable it is and how much of a good person like it makes me. And yeah, and I'm very conscious about a lot of like bedtime routine things like my phone goes into this do not disturb mode and goes into this like ugly looking light color which you know like I'm not looking at this bright light and stuff and just really focus on trying to stay away from like you know we used to watch a lot of like maybe Netflix or movies or something like that before bed and just trying to avoid a screen as much as possible. And, but anyways, so that was again, very much wave tops of my Ibogaine experience. Like I said, like there's, there's so much to it, but I think it gives a, a gist of, of the experience. Well, I appreciate that. That was, I think that gives people an idea of how comprehensive an experience like that can be. I do have a couple questions or comments you can possibly respond to or not. Um, that monster, mm-hmm. how many of the rest, the rest of us live with that monster and we don't even recognize it for what it is. You know, how many people just go through their whole life being under the pressure and weight of their own, mm. just relentless ridicule about yeah. never being good enough or never being who other people want you to be or, just that in and of itself, it's interesting that that manifested in your experience as some obscene monster, but you recognized that it, that was actually you doing that, you know, it wasn't necessarily an outside force and the vault, like you never got inside the vault. What's that? Yeah. Uh, Did you, I didn't start to grips with that. Did you come to grips with that? Or was it forever locked? Is it still in there? What's going on? So what that was is that, which was the final lesson, which was me sitting for hours out, you know, no longer seeing visuals, beating myself up one last time, you know, and being in the lowest of feelings. That was what, what was behind the vault is that like we destroyed this negative version of myself and visuals. And I could have learned that lesson, you know, very simply from that, but I guess I'm too hard headed. And so it was, I had to 
really suffer without the visuals and beat myself up one last time to recognize that that's not who I am going forward. And I'm not going to do that anymore. So that was the lesson behind the vault is uh, really changing my mindset. And just like everything else, like that's probably the one thing that I work on the most on a regular basis is mindset. I love reading or hearing things that talk about different aspects of mindset that I can take and incorporate into my life. And it changes, it changes so much, you know, like to give an example of just some mindset aspects, it's like, you may be doing a really hard workout. You have like one more round to go, you know, one more round of push-ups or running or weights or whatever it is. And it's at the very end of the workout and you're tired and it's like, I don't want to do this. And you're like, I have to do one more round. It's like, no, like shift that mindset to you. You get to do one more round. You get to do more push-ups. You get to do more running or whatever it is. And it changes things from a place of like, this sucks and is miserable to a place of gratitude in that like, man, I have the ability to do this where there's another guy out there who would kill to be able to do just a single round of this workout, you know, and I get to do that. And, and, and so mindset, like on a regular basis, like we, we all encounter like negative thoughts, you know, and I'm trying to take those and replace them with positive ones, you know, uh, I'm infinitely better than I was prior to doing medicine, but I still know too, that like, there's a lot of area to still grow. And, and part of that excites me because it's just fun becoming a better person, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, I mean, a lot of these things I, I, I work on, on a regular basis. And, and I say work loosely because I don't find it to be work. Like um, I came back and I was like, I feel so great. I will do whatever it is to keep this going. And that includes meditation and exercise and journaling and, um, you know, sleep hygiene stuff. And like, and I still do all this stuff today and it doesn't feel like work because I did it as soon as I got back and started creating those habits. And it's now just something I do. And I believe it's what helps keep me going on this, on this positive path too. Like I said, it's, it's not necessarily a a magic pill, you know, but for me, it, it opened the door for me to be able to be in a positive place where before like I had tried journaling and meditation and all these other things. And, but I just wasn't in the space to be able to really shift things and, and get the benefit from it, I think. Mm -hmm. So after I began and all that, that wasn't, that wasn't the end of your experience. While you were there, you also experienced 5-MEO. Right. Yeah. Briefly give us an idea of what that was like. Yeah. So, um, I was aware of 5-MEO probably before ayahuasca. And so, you know, I'd read on it and everything, but um, 
Ibogaine is where I poured all of my like, you know, research, like reading and trying to find anything on, on the subject. And so I guess I put all my focus on Ibogaine and then really didn't, um, you know, thought that was like the big hurdle. And, uh, but doing 5-MEO, it was probably one of the hardest things that I've done in my life, oddly enough, um, <laughs> because I was in a good place after I began. I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, I don't need it. And so, and I knew that 5-MEO was very, could be very, very intense, although very short-lived, you know, somewhere between maybe five minutes to upwards of like max, maybe 20 minutes, you know, but likely somewhere in between. But I knew that that was, it was going to be very intense. And I was the last person in our group of six to go through 5-MEO. And what I did not know is uh, how external of an experience it can be. And what I mean by that is with Ibogaine, like I said, like if you are seeing someone who's going through Ibogaine, they just look like they're having a peaceful nap. They look like they're in the most peaceful place with their eye mask on and they're just laying there, no issue. With 5-MEO, visually you may be somewhere else, but externally you can be yelling in the real world and all this other stuff. And I didn't know that, uh, but I found that out after hearing, you know, five, four or five other people before me. And one of them being my friend that came with me and actually, you know, quite a few people were pretty nervous about doing five MEO and I hear him, you know, he's like three floors below me and I can hear him screaming, no, no, you know, like, and I'm like, what is this? You know, like what is going on? And so, you know, and actually during Ibogaine, I was taught some techniques, strangely enough, like the medicine taught me things to be able to be present, don't worry about the future and all these things. And I was able to get myself in a really good place prior to doing 5-MEO, but then hearing my friend like, and everyone else screaming as they went through it one by one, I was like, oh boy, this is going to be tough. And it was, it was very difficult to get to the point of doing it. But in short, my experience with 5-MEO uh, although I didn't want to do it, I'm thankful I did because 5-MEO is very, very different. With Ibogaine, at any point you can open your eyes and you see the real world like you're no longer seeing visuals. Like at most, maybe lights, like there's streaks, you know, with the lights. But for the most part, like you're out of the medicine in a sense, you know, but you close your eyes and, and you go back to it with 5-MEO like once you're on that ride there's no coming back until it has ran its course like there's no opening your eyes and coming out of it like you are for me it felt like I went to another place and and 
when I describe with that, I don't mean like, like I saw images of another place. Like it actually felt like I had gone somewhere else and in this other place, I felt like I was being shown what was beyond death. And it is the greatest love that is beyond imagination times a million. Um, I feel like it is, it, and I think 5MEO experiences are typically hard to describe, but um, I would describe it as this is in a way kind of, like I said, I mean, beyond death and, and it is a beautiful thing. Like, like you are experiencing God's love. You are experiencing like the core of who you are in a way, like this pure love of your own self. And, and there's much more to that, that specific journey, but I would say that I had a hard time processing 5MEO um, because I felt like Ibogain was crystal clear. Everything had a purpose and a meaning behind it. There was no mixing any kind of thing. Like I wasn't shown any kind of fantastic image for no reason, you know, like it was just very, very specific and to the point. With 5MEO, I had a hard time processing it and it took me a while but ultimately what it freed me of was I had developed a fear of death and not so much of my own death, but more so other people, specifically the people that I cared about the most. Like I would visualize Becca, our son, dying a lot of times in horrific ways, dozens of times a day. And it could be like, oh, they're, Becca's taking our son to go to school and like me picturing them getting into a car wreck or, you know, just something horrific happening. And, and not just the idea of it, but actually the body's burning, you know, in this car wreck or being tore open and you know, and what it, I know what it was like, it was a protective measure of what I was doing because when you have seen and know that one instant somebody can be here and they're gone the next, that in seeing so much death, that you know that this can happen to anybody. And so, this was my way of protecting myself. So, if and whenever it did happen, then it's not going to hurt as bad. Is it's like a preparation scenario that you're running through in your mind so you can kind of emotionally prepare for the worst. Yeah. And man, that is no way to go through life. I mean, that is an awful, awful way of living. Um, but being shown what is beyond death has given me like the greatest peace because I know that it's so much better beyond death. And it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of funny, but not, but while I was on 5MEO, it, that place is so great 
I did not want to come home. Like I did not want to leave that place. Like I did not want to <clears throat> go back, but I'm, you know, and that's, and it's crazy to say, because it's like my wife, Becca, our son and our family and like all this stuff, like, and imagining something that is so much better that you'd, you, you'd be okay with staying there, you know, until they got there. But <clears throat> that seems to compare with a lot of people's near death experience. You know, right. they, there, some people describe almost being like given a choice and they have this longing to stay in that, in that presence, that new space. Um, yeah. And the, some people say they do choose to stay there, but they're told, no, you got work to do and they're sent back. So, yeah, I wanted to stay and, and I felt like I was stretched back to the earth, you know, and uh, did, did your, was there a time distortion or did it, did it feel like 10 minutes or did it feel like years? Like what? Uh, concept of time is really, really distorted. So um, I would say, it's hard to say because there's other things that I saw really didn't. Yeah. There are other things that I saw, but, um, like guessing time-wise, I mean, there's part of me that says like it was only one minute, but then there's part of me that's like, no, it probably had to be closer to like, could have been like 10 minutes, you know, or I, you know, I, it, it's hard to say like your, it seems like your understanding of time kind of, changes um so and the reality of time i don't even know i could ask you know but I, i'm not i'm not sure of that either but it it's definitely not something i was thinking about at all you know measurement of time being in that place but um but 5meo freed me of of all that and i know a very close friend of ours an old teammate of mine passed away about a year ago. And so this, at this point, like I am post-medicine and although very tragic and sad, there's a part of me that finds a lot of peace in it because I know, like I, it's one thing to say that it's like, oh, they're in a better place, but I know they're, this person is in a better place. And I know what that's like. And, and it sounds like I can imagine someone hearing this would probably think this is crazy, you know, but it's just, it's a great piece that I've been given with knowing that. I mean, and we know this from, from church and in Christianity is that, that there, there's something more beyond death and, but to, I guess, have that, like, that knowingness burned into your soul gives great peace, you know. Uh, a while back, I had a dream that I was in a plane, and, and the plane was crashing. And, my, and it was a very vivid dream, seemed very real. And I didn't have a fear of dying. Uh, my only fear was like, if I lived, you know, like my body was all like broken to pieces and I'm going to have to like deal with this agony of pain for a while. 
but it was like, if I die, it's okay. You know, like everyone around me on this plane is they're fearing death right now. And I get it, but I know that it can only get better beyond death. And, and, and that's just brought me a lot of peace and a lot of different ways. So you complete your, um, your time there at the clinic in Mexico and you come back stateside and, and, uh, they lived happily ever after, right? No. I I mean, (laughs) you know, I want to say yes to that, but, um, but I can't overemphasize the work that needs to be done on the backside, you know, the integration, um, I still meet with my integration coach and I'm so thankful that that is a part of VETS protocol is that you're paired up with um, a coach to help you prepare. And they also help you on the back end with integrate, integrating any of the lessons and insights that you might've gotten and just helping you navigate that and really what life looks like forward. And I'm just immensely thankful for my coach and, I mean, vets as a whole. I would have to say that I have to thank Amber and Marcus for not only starting vets and creating these opportunities for myself and others, but one story I didn't mention is their own. You know, I watched... uh, when I was learning about Ibogaine, I watched a YouTube video on their own journey with looking into psychedelics as an option for treatment and kind of like a last ditch effort. And I I couldn't be more thankful for the amount of lives that they've saved are, it's huge. But then when you think beyond the ripple effects, you know, of I know our family situation has gotten so much better. And I think about our son's life, how that has been positively impacted and what that looks like future generations, you know, the ripple effect for just one family is tremendous. And that's not getting into the hundreds of other grant recipients, just like us, you know, speaking of family, Becca, how did how did you perceive, you know, the before and after of CT's experience? Uh, it was crazy. I remember he uh, got to the airport, you know, right after treatment. And this is the first time that I've been able to talk to him since, you know, going through the medicine. And he started crying. And I was like, whoa, what happened? Um, this is crazy. I've probably seen this man cry twice in my life. Like when we got married and then like when Colton was born, you know, like what is going on right now? Um, and you know, he had to like stop and he was laughing and he was like, no, these are like happy tears, you know? And so I'm like, oh my gosh, like what just happened? You know, like, what did you just go do? And like, this is crazy, you know? And And he's like, oh, I just, I have so much to tell you. And, you know, when he got home, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, I got my, my husband back, you know, from when we first met, but I would say this was an even better version of him. 
So like, I almost didn't know who this person was and it was, it was incredible. And I think that's like, I also struggled because I was so used to like having reactions to certain things and, you know, with his anger that like when I knew something was going to happen, like I would try to prevent that reaction from him, you know? And so like, I was still having those like jerk reactions of like, well, I need to protect him, you know, from whatever the situation is. So he doesn't get angry. And then like something would happen and he wouldn't get angry. And I was like, well, that's, that's weird. You know, like I wasn't used to it, even though like it was consistent, you know, like he wasn't getting angry and, you know, these things weren't happening, but I was still having like, even, you know, our son, you know, like we were both having these like reactions of like preparing ourselves for him to get angry. And it it just, it wasn't happening. So it was, it was definitely an adjustment, but I mean, such a game changer. I mean, literally changed our lives. Uh, And especially, yeah, our son, like, completely different. So y'all kind of probably felt like you were walking on eggshells all the time around the house. Oh, pre-treatment, 100%. 100% walking on eggshells. And, but then it took a while to get used to not having to do that. Yeah, it was, it was a, a long time to get used to not walking on eggshells. I would say that I've, I've forgotten about this, but mainly because it wasn't so much for me, but recognizing that because I was in such a better place coming back, that it was some big adjustments, I think, for Becca and Colton, and probably even the question of, is this real or is this going to stick may have gone through Becca's mind, but um, in, and there were so many negative habits that I had before that I think just became normal. And when those weren't there anymore, there's probably, I'm assuming like a lot of adjustment that y'all have to go through and kind of figuring out like, okay, so things are different, but what do they look like going forward and how do we adjust to that? And it's strange to think because if someone brings you a brand new car, it should just be like, oh, this is great. You know, it's a brand new car, you know, but yeah, you don't think that there's damage that has been done in the past that not everyone else has immediately switched over into this you know, new space kind of thing. Right. Well, there's and, a fear of the unknown. You know, what, what does the future look like? Is, is, yeah. is this the new person I get used to? You know, it's almost like a, um, there's a new introductory phase you have to go through. Like, oh, 100%. Meeting the new person. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? And then if, if I'm understanding correctly, Becca, you've had your own experience as well that, you know, to whatever yeah. degree you're comfortable, you could share with us. Yeah. So, I remember when he first got back and I mean, these conversations still happen today, but me going through medicine actually helps these conversations make sense and not be so foreign. But I remember, you know, he would talk to me about, you know, the medicine, his experience. And I'm just sitting there like, you are crazy. Like, I, I can't even fathom what you're saying. Like I'm understanding. And, you know, I see how you've learned from it and everything else, but like, 
the you know getting into the weeds of things and I'm like this is just really weird you know and talking about you know life after death and and like there were times where I was like I just can't have this conversation with you you know like it doesn't make sense to me like I don't get it it, this is just so bizarre and like left field. I, I don't even know how to respond to these conversations, you know? And so that was, that was challenging for me. And I know I'm sure it was for him because he's wanting to like talk through these things that, you know, he's learned and has these new experiences. And I'm just like, I don't, I can't, I, I don't even know what to say, but, you know, part of that transition of him coming back too is that I realized that, I had taken on some of those anger traits, you know, that, that he had um, just as a, you know, kind of protecting myself or, you know, whatever it was like, I was really angry and it was very apparent, you know, now that he's not angry. And so I was, you know, for a while I was like, well, this isn't fair. You got rid of all of that, you know, and now I'm stuck with these things. Like, and so like, I would try to, you know, he would work with me and we would try to, you know, get me better on like my anger and stuff like that. But I think it came to a point where I was, I was like, man, like I want to go, I, I want to be able to work through things, you know? And so I don't even think I, I told him, but, you know, I researched it and, you know, look through vets because vets does offer, you know, spouse retreats as well. And so uh, I filled out all the paperwork and I just needed his DD-214. So I asked him and I think he was kind of shocked. Like, I don't yeah. think he would have ever thought, you know, that I would have done this, but I saw the results that he got, you know, like I wanted those same results, you know, cause I, I had some of those same traits and I wanted to get rid of them too. And so it worked out to where, you know, his buddy that went with him, uh, his wife ended up going with me. Uh, so we went down to Mexico and I don't call them by their scientific names. Like I, I did mushrooms and frog. Uh, so psilocybin and the 5-MeO-DMT. And, you know, again, with vets, it was incredible because I was paired up with the, the coach. And so she helped me kind of prepare and I didn't do a ton of research. So I didn't know exactly what I was getting myself into. Of course, with mushrooms, that's well-known, you know, in the States for all this like psychedelic type, like crazy colors and, and that whole thing. So like I had a perception of it, but I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I, I kind of didn't want to know, uh, you know, like I said earlier, I couldn't even do, you know, laughing gas at the dentist. Like I, the least I know about it, like the better I am, you know, I, cause I'd probably back out. And so my, my coach helped me prepare with my intentions and, and all of that. And I will say I was very lucky because the retreat that I went on was, was organized really well to where we did a lot of like ritual type stuff. So we had a shaman there uh, to administer uh, the mushrooms and the five amino, the frog. And so we did some other ceremonies leading up to doing mushrooms. So we had like a flower bath that kind of cleanses you before you go into, you know, the, the treatment for mushrooms. And uh, we had a cacao ceremony. So uh, we made this like altar of flowers and I mean, it was beautiful. And it was, you know, there were, there were 12 of us there at this retreat and we all had a part in making this flower altar. So, I mean, it was, 
it was beautiful because it had everybody's personalities in it. Like it was incredible. And then I think that I put so much work into preparing for this that I had some just crazy connection to all of these like ceremonies that I, I went through, even with the cacao ceremony. I mean, we just drank chocolate, you know, it was chocolate with a little bit of sugar and water and, you know, just drinking that, uh, the night before, uh, I remember, you know, I'm now looking back on it. It was a dream, but at the time, like this was real life. Like these like Mayan dudes or Aztec dudes, like coming into my room and I had a ton of bugs in my room. So I slept with a sheet over my head, but I remember hearing like the door open and like footsteps in my room. And I was like, I don't even want to look like, I thought it was one of the other wives, you know? And then when like, they weren't saying anything, I was like, I don't want to look like, I can't look just whatever happens, happens like whatever, you know? Um, and then like, it was silent for a while. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to look. So I pulled the, the sheet over my head and there's these two like big dudes, like fully kitted, you know, kind of if in your mind with like the old armor and they had like a spear in their hand and they were just standing there, didn't say anything, but the presence that I got was, and this is again from chocolate, drinking chocolate. Okay. Nothing crazy in the chocolate. It's literally chocolate, a little bit of sugar and water. And these guys were standing at the foot of my bed and just their presence was telling me it's going to be okay. Like we are here to protect you like trust in the medicine, you will be fine. And so like that was the night before leading into, you know, doing mushrooms. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, like I was scared to death to do this, but like, I'm getting all, all the signs of like, this is going to be okay. Just trust in the medicine. And so going into the medicine, uh, like ours was like actual like dried mushrooms and he mixed it with orange juice and so we, we drank it. And again, I had no idea what to expect. Like, you know, we all are kind of in a semicircle and laying on mats uh, outside. And I remember, you know, the, the wife next to me, she started crying and I was like, oh, well, this is, this happening for her, you know, like something's going on with her. And I'm like, well, I'm just still sitting here. Like, uh, what do I do? Like, is this not working? Like, what is going on? And then I finally, I was like, well, I'm getting tired. I'm going to lay down. And then that's when like it hit me and, you know, like I saw all the pretty colors, like the kaleidoscope, you know, looking through a kaleidoscope and moving it. Like I saw all the shapes and colors and everything. And, you know, looking back on it, like all the colors had a very, um, like meaning each color had a meaning for me. So like, I would, I would see something like that, but then like, I would, you know, open my eyes and like, it would feel normal for me. And again, like every person is different, you know, with mushrooms for sure. But I remember looking at a picture of Chris and Colton, like at the head of my like little mat. And I was like, man, Colton is such a, a beautiful kid. And before, like, if anybody ever gave me a compliment about Colton, it was, well, yeah, like that's because of Chris or because of my mom or my mother-in-law. Like I would never actually give myself credit for that, for him being such a good kid. 
And so I remember laying there looking at the picture and then I, I'd close my eyes and the medicine would tell me like, he is a great kid because of you and because of Chris and of course all these other people, but, but you specifically, like you played a part in that. And so there were lessons like that, that I, I learned along the way, which I mean, were unreal, you know? Um, but I think um, it's, it's actually interesting to think back on is that like Chris and I had very like similar results, I guess, within our teachings, but of course, like different experiences, but I had to sit in my anger, you know, with mushrooms for a long time, um, because that was one of the things that I wanted to get rid of. And so I remember, you know, like cussing at myself, you know, and like being really angry and cussing at the medicine, like, just let me go, you know, because at one point, like the shaman, he was like, okay, the medicine should start wearing off now. Uh, you can, you know, I'll go upstairs and get some food. Cause you know, we're not able to eat, you know, leading up to this. And so I was like, yes, I'm finally done. Like I get to be done with this, you know, cause it, it wasn't easy. And so then the medicine was like, no, you were staying right here and you were not moving. And so like, I just, I felt like paralyzed and, you know, people afterwards, they were like, Becca, you look like you were in a coma. And I was like, well, I kind of felt like it, you know, like the medicine had me, it, it had me. And it was, it was very forceful with me because that's exactly what I needed. You know, the medicine gave me exactly what I needed at the exact time. And so I would hear people like laughing and talking and then there was an elevator. So I would hear the elevator go up and down and up and down. And then, you know, like I could hear people eating and I was like, I want to eat, you know, like get me out of this, you know, like I want to eat something like that would be nice. But then eventually the elevator kept going, but eventually the talking stopped and it was just really silent and I got really scared. And I was like, I'm the only one down here. Like everybody else is done and they've gone upstairs and they're enjoying their lives and I'm stuck right here in this medicine that's, it's not fun, you know, like I want to be out of this. And, and I felt so alone at that time. And I was like, show me Chris, like, show me Chris. I know he will comfort me. And so it showed me Chris, but he was really far off in the distance. And I was like, well, why is he not coming closer? You know, like I need him to come closer. And it was like, well, he is not coming closer because you're not letting him. And like letting that sink in was like, you know, I had a wall built up that was, you know, preventing Chris from like actually getting close to me because, you know, for whatever reason, if it was because of his anger, I was protecting myself or, you know, even from, you know, if something happened to him overseas and he died, like I had this wall built up to, to protect myself from these bad things, you know, that could happen. And so once I realized that, you know, that wall fell down and he actually came to me and that's like our relationship has like never been better because of that, because of that realization and that wall has been torn down. Walls protect us, but they also isolate us. You know, they prevent us from communicating. And uh, those walls inside are sometimes less porous than the you know the ones we build in physical space. 
100%. Wow. Yeah, so those were just a few of the lessons that, that I learned. Of course, there were so much more, but um, I really, there for a while, like I had to sit in my anger because I was so mad at the medicine and so mad at myself. And like, for me, I had to sit in that anger to realize that that's not nice. Like you are not being nice right now and you need to stop that. And I remember having to go use the restroom and I was like, okay, medicine, like I need to go to the restroom. Like you got to let me up, you know? And it was like, no, you're staying right here. And like, I would sit with that pain of like having to go to the restroom so bad and holding it. And, and then I'm like, come on, like, I'm going to end up peeing myself on this mat, you know, like, let me go to the restroom. And then it finally, like, it took that feeling away of having to go to the bathroom. And I was like, oh, I see how it is. You know, like, you're really not letting me do anything like you are controlling. And, you know, it was just a matter of like, it just kept testing me and like, I would get so angry and I had to sit in that. And I remember finally it would let me up and, you know, most people can walk around on medicine and see beautiful colors and all of that. And no, for me, like I was, very stationary. And as soon as I would open my eyes, I could, you know, walk around or whatever and go to the restroom. But I remember it finally let me go to the restroom. And one of the support people, you know, kind of, they walk with you to, to make sure that you get there. Okay. And I remember just being so angry walking to the bathroom and she's like, how's it going? You know, and asking me questions. And I'm like, it, it sucks. Like it's horrible, you know? And like afterwards I was like, I hope I wasn't rude to you. And she was like, Oh no, not at all. But in my head, I was so on fire and like, so angry that like, I thought I was like angry to everyone, you know? And, and it was just, no, it was just this internal thing that I, I sat with for, it seemed like hours, you know? Uh, Cause literally I think there were maybe three or four of us that went, you know, kind of the longest. And, and so for like almost seven hours, like a good majority of that, I sat with my anger, um, before I finally was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. You know? And I told the medicine that, and then it, I mean, it, of course it let me linger a little bit longer cause I still didn't get it, you know? And, um, but finally it, it, it kind of released me and it was like, oh, this is nice. Like, I'm not angry. Like this is peaceful. And I remember like, you know, the colors were red and the angrier I got, the darker red it was. And, and then finally, when I released all that, it was like oranges and yellows and it was very warm and peaceful. And it was, it was incredible feeling for sure. And then my five MEO experience, it was kind of the cherry on top of the Sunday for sure again, I didn't want to do 5-MEO because I was like, I had a horrible experience with mushrooms. Like, I don't want to go into something else and like have a repeat of that. I, I did not want to go and do 5-MEO, but I, I knew I had to, like, I showed up to do this, like, I'm going to commit and I'm going to, I'm going to go through, but. And this is a day or two later, I guess. Yeah. So they split us up. So we did all, we all did mushrooms together. And then, uh, half of us went that next day and then uh, the rest of us went the, the following day. So two days after. And I was like, I know I can't go that next day. Like my body is really weak. Like I was down for seven hours. I didn't drink anything. I didn't eat anything for those seven hours. Like I was, I was depleted. 
And so I was like, I can't go the next day. So I took a day of rest and then I went that second day and I was on the list to go first. And then for various reasons, I ended up going third and I sat in like anxiety and like, I mean, I was crying. Like I was really scared to go do five and, you and, uh, but then when I finally got down there, like, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to do it correctly, you know, cause with the way that I did it, you had to, you know, smoke it. So you had to inhale, like, I've never inhaled anything in my life. Like, I don't even know if I know how, like the shaman had to teach me, you know? So like, I was worried that I wasn't even going to do it correctly. And, and so, you know, he walks me through everything. He was, I mean, incredible. And so, you know, I, I like inhaled this five MEO and I just remember like people's advice to me was uh, just let go and say yes. So I was like, okay, Becca, just let go, just let go. And I kept saying that over and over again. And I was like, just say yes, let go, let go. And I think I was still, I mean, I wasn't letting go, you know, I was telling myself to let go, but I never actually did. Uh, But then when I finally did, I felt this overwhelming love for myself and like myself was, I mean, I was giving myself this like massive hug and it was so warm and like, I didn't want to leave that either, you know, like. I actually wanted to stay in that space, but it was like, no, you have to open your eyes. And so after I felt this like overwhelming love for myself, which again, like I haven't felt that in so long and it was making me open my eyes. Like I literally could not keep my eyes closed. Like the harder I would try, the more they would open. And so like, I finally opened my eyes and you know, I had two support people there and I had the shaman and I was like, I just need a hug. Like I'm feeling so much love. Like I need a hug. And so I remember all three of them just climbing on top of me, you know, and giving me a big hug. And I even wanted to like call all the women from, you know, upstairs and tell them to come down and give me a hug as well. But, uh, I don't, I don't think I could have been that loud, but but I just remember laying there and looking up at the trees and, you know, there's a a big iguana in the tree and just watching this iguana. And I, it was just so peaceful and so loving that I, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience. I'm glad that I did it. Um, Do I ever want to do it again? No, but um, it was, it was definitely the cherry on top of, of what I needed for that Sunday for sure. So you're both back home post-treatment. What does, like, how does life begin to, but now, I mean, now you understand what he's been trying to tell you this whole time. Oh Um, yeah. Like we can have conversations now and I'm like, yes, I get that. And like, this is, you know, this is my point of view. And I mean, the conversations that we have now, it's like, well, yeah, this is a no brainer, you know, it makes sense. And, and so like, again, our relationship has, I mean, it's never been stronger. I couldn't imagine never going through medicine and still trying to have this intimate relationship when they would be really difficult for sure. So what does, what does life look like now? Uh, Spiritually, physically, you know, family dynamics, church dynamics. Oh yeah. Like it's, it's been a 180, at least for, for me, for sure. Um, because like, I, I have different priorities now, like just with, 
like the way that I eat. I was addicted to sugar. Like, you know, I was a pastry chef, like I love sweets. And so now I don't even eat sugar. Like I'll use like honey or dates or something like that, but like I don't eat processed sugar. I even, I've been incorporating meat back into my diet, but I stopped eating meat. It was everything that was healthy. I wanted so much of that. And I didn't want to put anything else in my body that would, would alter that. Like I wanted to be as healthy as possible. And I think I ended up losing like 20 pounds. We both have lost quite a bit of weight. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's changed, you know, because I don't cook all of those like processed foods anymore. So, you know, even our son is reaping the benefits of this and yeah, our outlook on, on health, like in the products that we use and, you know, really it's, it's shaped, you know, creating an, a new business that, you know, Chris has. And I mean, all these things that, I mean, nothing but good for sure. And again, it's like in everything that has happened afterwards, it's like, God still had that plan for us, you know, and as long as we're able to listen and trust in God and like go down that path, like he will provide for us. And that's been proven numerous times in, in our lives, especially after medicine. Yeah, I think a big thing for me is that in, in some ways, prayer has changed uh, uh, a lot for me. I think before, because I was so worried, like I was constantly praying for whatever it was, you know, and now like out of a sense of fear, like, cause you were worried yeah, about like, the existential guess, death of your family and all. Yeah. I think in always anticipating the worst case scenario, you know, great for the military, but not so great in the civilian world, you know, just always anticipating this worst case scenario. And, and so I was in that mindset of this is going to go wrong. That is going to go wrong, like all of these things. And so like praying against that, where now I feel like I have so much trust in that God is going to take care of us. Like our son had this Bible verse that, you know, he has to memorize a new Bible verse each week for school. And uh, one of the ones, it was uh, maybe like November timeframe, but, you know, it's talking about how God takes care of the birds and the grass, you know, like they're totally taken care of. They have food, you know, and don't you think that we are more important than the birds and the grass, like God's going to take care of us. And so I think having that trust and knowing that we will be okay, it changes for, for me, like, I mean, obviously the outlook, but it also changes prayer where maybe it's shifting a little bit more in the thanksgiving of things versus the help me. Like, I'm worried about this, like, you know, like help with the situation where regardless of whatever, whatever it is, even if it is difficult, there's probably some meaning behind it and some growth that can come from it. And we just have to know that it's okay. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, going through medicine, it has gotten rid of these like barriers that I had to where now I feel like I have that direct line with God to where like, I'm actually listening. And, you know, like the other day I actually had a dream 
that I needed to do more. I teach a, a Wednesday night uh, religious education class and, uh, you know, we go to church every Sunday, but I was like, I need to do more. And that was the message that I got from that. So I'm still working through what that means, but, you know, like I haven't forgotten that, you know, does that mean that I read more books to expand my knowledge of, you know, God and, and kind of his message? I don't know, but I know that I should keep my eyes and my ears open and he'll show me, you know, that next step that I need to, to take for sure. So I'm just always listening. Great point. I'll often at odds with what to tell my fellow Christians about psychedelics, you know, because inevitably they question whether something like that is right for them. And I'm, you know, it comes down to the individual and I'm not asking y'all for an authoritative answer, but you know, understanding that we all come from this kind of, you know, secular educational construct that we're taught about, you know, different substances, they're all kind of lumped into one basket. Like, how do you, how do you explain to your fellow Christian about, you know, the potential upside or downside of something like psychedelic medicine? For the most part, we haven't, with the exception of, uh, we spent a weekend our son, his friend, and his friend's parents were going to be out at the lake and invited us to stay with them for the weekend. And, you know, I mean, there's a couple other factors. And I think about this too, with doing this podcast is that our son goes to a Christian school for the most part, like, uh, I haven't really, in a way I've shared this publicly but in a way I haven't. And I think a lot of the people that will probably see this from social media have no idea um, about going through treatment with vets and things like that. But um, so we're spending uh, this time with this couple and I felt like I was the whole weekend I was holding back from being myself because this is a significant part of our lives. And, um, I feel like I'm just, you know, like I'm just not being my true self in a way somehow, you know, and there was a small window in the conversation that kind of opened the door to being able to say something about our experience. And then I was like, you know what, like this will either make or break this this weekend you know but i just cannot sit here and be quiet anymore about like the nonprofit that i'm helping out and all these things and so we decided to tell them and uh man they were so great so under understanding you know just they were interested they were fascinated and that was a really like great experience being able to, to share with them because um, I have shared with people to where it, it didn't go that way, you know, and maybe they had that same thought like I did when I first heard about a guy taking CBD for traumatic brain injury. And I was just put so much judgment on them. And I think that's probably my like biggest fear out of the whole thing is that people placing judgment on it. But I learned this from Amber is that 
you know, one thing I can be thankful is if they are putting judgment on it is that they have never been in a place where they're willing to try anything to get better. And I'm thankful they have not been in that place. But the other part of it is if we're saying nothing, how much is that preventing people from finding this type of healing? And so this will probably be a springboard for sharing with, with just other people and Christians. Um, Cause I've, I've done other interviews and podcasts on this subject, but not, I've not shared it through my social media or anything like that. And, um, and, and a lot of our family has no idea as well either. Um, we've been pretty private about it because of, you know, that fear of, of judgment, but that's okay if people have that judgment, but if somebody finds a, that ultimately leads to them being in such a better place, then I think that's, that's totally worth it. I can sympathize 100%. In my day-to-day life, I very, I very rarely bring this up, you know, and sometimes I'm at odds with whether to explain to a person that I'm doing this or not. Often people find out just because i I dropped a clue here or there, and then they say, well, I had no idea you were doing this. And usually it's a positive response. And when I do mention it, they're usually not reactive. They're kind of intrigued. Obviously, if, you know, if you've known someone for years and you've proven yourself over time to be someone that they regard with respect and you know mutual admiration for, then when they find out that you have entertained such things, they're usually curious and not judgmental, you know? So even though I'm still very reserved about it, overwhelmingly the, uh, you know, the reaction I get is interest, you know, casual interest. So um, it's not been near as negative as I was prepared to possibly endure. I thought, you know, I thought I might uh, just having a podcast about this, I might, you know, lose all my connections, you know? So that's, it's, it's a very, um, it's, it's scary, you know, to, uh, to potentially endure, you know, the loss of the respect of your, the fe- your fellow man, the people that, that, sure. that you hold in high regard. You don't want to be alienated from the people you know and love. So, yeah, I understand that, that challenge. Well, we've, I've kept you off for longer than I anticipated, and I appreciate <laughs> I warned you. your openness. <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. It's been an incredible conversation. I've enjoyed enjoyed it immensely. Um, just scratching but, the surface. Right, right. I, I I could talk to y'all all day, but uh, I'll spare you that burden. Um, <laughs> as we leave, any any links, any uh, anything you would direct people to, but be it uh, your fellow Christians or people in uh, military service. Um, What's a good place for people to go to find out more information? Yeah, well, one, I want to say thank you for doing this podcast and not just the podcast with Beck and I on it, but just in general, like creating this place of information for other Christians and, and people of all faiths to be able to come to and listen and learn, you know, and maybe do their own, you know, research is is amazing I'm, I'm really thankful for that and for and, and for giving us this opportunity to share our experience as well but if um 
If somebody wants to learn more, my recommendation would be going to the VETS website, which is vetsolutions.org. There's an e-course that's on the website that is available to anyone. You don't have to be a veteran. You don't have to have served in the special operations community. Anybody can access the e-course. And, and there's tons of great information, both written and video form, that takes you through history of psychedelics, different types, potential benefits, and just lots and lots of information there. I think for anyone, that's a, that's a great start to learn more. I've linked to that in the past and I'll, I'll be sure and link to that in this episode as well. And, awesome. Um, well, I appreciate your work for vets and the community there. And um, I thank you all again for joining me today. I think yeah. that your story is potent and it's, it's, uh, it's going to resonate with a lot of people. And I thank you for being willing to share. Uh, thank um, you, Clint. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. CT and Becca, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. And um, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Yeah. Looking 100%. forward to it. All right. Until then, goodbye. See you. Once again, my deepest thanks to CT and Becca for joining me today and for their willingness to share their journey with us all. Although their challenging experiences, both in life and their therapeutic use of psychedelics have yielded positive results, sharing those experiences with others can still be quite daunting for a multitude of reasons, and I respect their willingness to share their story with us. It is also of supreme importance to recognize, as they stated, these psychedelic experiences were not magic pills that miraculously transformed them. Instead, the psychedelic medicines gave them new perspectives and acted as a catalyst for positive change. The lasting positive results they are experiencing now are wholly reliant on their willingness and ability to make investments in their mental, physical, and spiritual health. Just as in living the Christian life, it requires devotion and work. I try hard to avoid straying into politics on this platform and I would prefer to avoid addressing it now, but I believe it might be helpful. In full disclosure, politically, I consider myself a voluntarist. Most of you will likely say, what is a voluntarist? In the simplest of terms, it is an extreme libertarian. It means I don't believe in the legitimacy of a governmental state, and I don't believe in the legitimacy of a national military that initiates or engages in conflicts around the globe. So a number of people have asked me, why do you care so much about the lives of people who serve in that system? I care because I'm a Christian, and I seek to love and serve my fellow human beings, regardless of their social status, biological characteristics, or political perspectives. I am thankful for vets and other organizations that help people like CT get life-saving treatment. Every day, about 20 United States military veterans take their own lives. Although I disagree with the policies that have led to their suffering, these are noble men and women who have selflessly forsaken their own freedom and aspirations to serve their fellow man, and they deserve our love and care when they are in need. At the very least, I believe that they deserve the opportunity to try psychedelic therapy, especially when all other modalities have failed them. 
And if you would like to sponsor people like CT, please visit VetSolutions.org to make a donation. In the last few years, Vets has helped over 500 military veterans receive this life-saving therapy. I have made a donation to Vets, and I encourage you to prayerfully consider doing so as well. If you would like to connect with CT or Becca, there are links to their Instagram accounts in the show notes for this episode. You can also listen to my conversation with the co-founder and executive director of Vets, Amber Capone, in episode 13 of this podcast. And although I assure you I will absolutely do my best to avoid discussing politics on this podcast, if any of you are interested in better understanding my political philosophy, let me direct you to the podcast of a few other Christians who can almost certainly more willingly and ably elaborate on this topic. First, the Tom Woods Show. Tom is a Roman Catholic libertarian, author, entrepreneur, and podcaster. Second, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast with Alex Bernardo. Alex comes from a more Lutheran perspective, but I believe he might currently attend a more modern, non-denominational fellowship. Two other podcasts to check out are Godarchy with Michael Meharry and the Anarcho-Christian Podcast. This is only scratching the surface. There are many people involved at the intersection of Christian and Libertarian thought if you would like to take a dive down that rabbit hole. Well, my friends, I thank all of you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And please remember to support and share the show. It means a lot to me. And until we meet again to engage the topic of Christian faith and psychedelics, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm -hmm.